this episode, I'm joined in conversation with one of South Africa's premier recording artists. In the year 2000, in the year 2000, welcome to From the Hip with me, Benji Moody. In the year 2000, the people we meet, coming together and dancing in the street. He's also a multi-talented, award-winning producer, songwriter, arranger, performer, film score composer and painter whose work has been recognized not just here at home, but also globally. He's also a very close friend of mine for over 40 years, so it is indeed a very personal pleasure to welcome Neil Solomon to From the Hip. Thank you, Benj. What an introduction. Wow. I forgot about some of those things you mentioned. Oh, you do do them, by the way. (laughs) I do do them. (laughs) Let's go right back. You were born in Pretoria. I was there till about the age of 14, and my dad took up a post in Durban as the rector of the ML Sultan Technicon. So we moved to Durban, in, uh, and I matriculated. So I did 8, 9, and 10, I think, in Durban. Yeah. You're Lebanese, right? You have a Lebanese Lebanese, family, right? Both sides, my mom and dad, yeah. When you were growing up, was was there music in the house? There was, but interestingly, um, obviously there was my my folks listened to the current music of the day and there was Sinatra and all that, but my dad loved Arabic music Mm. and Bura music. Wow, what a combo. Yeah, what a combo. (laughs) So um, it was quite interesting what I was hearing during the day. Um, There was this one record I remember so well. It was by a Lebanese poet kind of singer called Wadi al-Safi. Right. And he, he did this piece about a well and his love, this woman, and, and he spoke to the well. And both sides of the record are just, there are no, no tracks. There's just one track on either side. And it's the most beautiful piece. I didn't really understand it too much when I was younger, but as I got to understand Lebanese better, it was it's such an amazing story, and I still listen to it. Well, I mean, that Arabic influence has filtered into some of the work that you've done over the last few years. It has very much so. It was always there, you know, and it's funny. how you, I was born in South Africa, but being of Lebanese descent and both, uh, both grandparents from both sides come from there. When you were growing up, both in Pretoria and Durban, what were you listening to? We had schoolboy bands. You know Greg Georgiadis? Right, of course. Greg had a band called The Electric Flame before we moved to Durban. And a schoolboy band, and I was the singer. And I used to get on my sister's bicycle to go to those things called sessions. And um, I was like 15 years old, and I'd ride the bicycle to, with the microphone in, the, in the, my sister's um, carrier in the back of the bicycle. And I'd set up my mic and I'd sing with them. And we were playing like Santana and all that kind of thing as schoolboys, you know. But going to Durban is where I kind of established what I was really into. And at the time, I was very, I became very much a folky because I was still at school in Durban and I'd go and sneak into places. And there was Brian Finch and Kenny Henson and Abstract Truth and Louis Ribeiro all playing on the beachfront. It was such a, a musical education for me. It was unbelievable. You so know? you went into folk pretty early other, uh, rather than the standard pop stuff of the Beatles and the very, Stones and, and, and stuff like yeah, that. Very much. I thought I was going to be the next Bob Dylan, you know. I just wanted to say that, John, because, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you both share a similarity voice-wise as well. I mean, you both had quite deep voices. 
um, when we had the passengers later, I was singing a bit more rock, kind mm, of a little mm, bit in a, a bit higher. higher register and that. But my natural voice is what I've gone back to, you know. At what stage did you suddenly realize that this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a musician. I think from the age of about nine, when I heard the Beatles, I was just like, no ways. This is something else, you know. And my sister was already working, still in Pretoria, and she bought me, I think the very first album she bought me was a South African record. It was The Square Set. Oh, with Neville Whitmill. With Neville Whitmill, which okay. was, I loved that band. And the second album, I think she paid like three ninety nine or something for it, was Beatles for Sale. So I must have been, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 years old. I wanted to do that, but my dad being an academic, I mean, he just said, you have to study. You have to do something before you do music because... I had two uncles who were musicians, and they were really struggling. So he was like, "Uh, uh-uh, you ain't going to do this." So first. did you go to college then? He enrolled me at um, Natal Varsity to do a, a computer sciences degree, and I went to Varsity for the first day, and I just didn't want to do it. So I didn't know what he said to him, be him being an academic and quite strict, and him and my mom. But they, I mean, they were amazing. And I went home and I said, "Listen, Dad, I really don't want you to spend money on the books." And he said, well, you're going to have to do something else. So I said, well, I want to do, I'll do, I'll study a degree in music. Got hold of um, UCT and it was too late in the year to be enrolled. I'd have to wait for another another year. So I said, the only other thing I want to do is art. So he phoned his friend who was the head of um, Durban Technicon and he got me in um, into art school, but he said, you better do graphic design because you can make more money than being a painter because I really wanted to be a sculptor. So, <laughs> But you landed up being a painter. And landed up being a painter, yeah. Let's talk about those Durban bands because they they, they, those bands that came out in the, in the early 70s were quite influential. I mean, you, you talk about abstract truth. Oh, my goodness. At, to, at the Totem Club. At Totem, downstairs yeah, at yeah, Palm Beach yeah. Hotel. I, I mean, I went there when I was 14 yeah. um, and, and sneaked in to see them. And they were, they were a remarkable band. Oh, they were remarkable in all, all their lineups. I mean, I think the first one was with Brian Gibson, Robbie Pavard, Kenny, and Sean Bergen. Right. And then they changed to... Um, uh, to George Wolfhart. George Wolfhart and all of them. And I had an experience with George... Because years later, with the Uptown Rhythm Dogs, which you signed, we toured with Janice Ian. It was early 80s, 81, 82. And the night before we started the, the, the tour at um, Coliseum Theatre in Joburg, Tony Hunter, our saxophone oh, player, right. was killed. It was such a, it was just such an upheaval for us. And in, overnight, we had to get George Wolfhard and Mike Forer in. Into the, the band, yeah. and so we had like two hours rehearsal and did the show the next evening. I remember that very well. That was that that was tragic. Other than than the electric flame, which <laughs> is typical of the period, were you in other bands or did you really were you developing a, a solo career in Pretoria? Still going like up to the age of what fourteen or so. I first had my own band called the Rubber Band, 
And and the guy, we were all 14, 15 years old, and we had a bass player who was already working. He came from England, and he taught me a lot because he had seven singles, and his passion was Motown or the American soul. I don't know if it was Motown. I think it could have been already at that at that mm. time because Motown was established in those days. 60s, yeah. 60s. So, and he, and he, he turned me on to Joe Tex and Otis Redding and all that. So, I mean... That was a big influence on me as well. I stuck around playing solo. I went into Totem in my army uniform, and Brian Finch said I can bring, play some tunes. I had my guitar with me, hoping. It was like a folky evening, and I played, I covered two um, Freedom Children songs, okay. and I played two of my own new compositions, and that's how I kind of, when I started writing. I wrote a song called Sparkle, and I wrote a song called Days I'll Remember You By. And that's where the writing aspect came in. That's where the writing aspect came in. And so you kind of played around Durban, right, mainly? I played around Durban, and then I I became like a pro-muso, as they called them in those days. And Brian Finch very kindly recommended me to Neil van der Spey and Hubert van der Spey, who owned a place called Dispense in Mm, Pretoria, mm. When it was a tiny little venue, and I got—I think that was really my first professional job as a musician, and I played there for three months. Went back to Durban. By then, I had an agent who was Morris Fresco, who I'm sure remember, you remember yes, very absolutely. well, and I still see him around now. I was playing at the Persian Room at the Four Seasons Hotel for eight months. And these guys came in. It was Tony Hunter and... Um, Dan Chebo. Yes. And, um, and they said, do you want to form a band? I said, yeah, well, what kind of band do you want to form? And they said, well, we'll base it around you and your sound. And, that. and that's how the Uptown Rhythm Dogs was born. Tony came up with the name and I loved it. So, Do you think that, that playing those extended seasons kind of really hones your skill absolutely and 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 forms part of the writing absolutely because you've got time you're not on the road every night setting up pa taking pa down so you'd be at home and i the other thing that really helped me and i never thought at the time because i was one of those it was like not into commercial music and all that nonsense you know but playing covers you learn so much about song construction Mm. and it really, really helped me, you know, with my own writing. And yeah, those long, those long three months or whatever, I did eight months at the Persian Room. And yeah, I learned a lot. And I think it was around that time that I started writing songs for, which turned out to be for the Uptown Rhythm Dogs album. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at the, the dining room table in our, our parents' flat. I think you went there in Mon- uh, called Montezuma, which yes. was on North Beach on the Snow Parade. Yeah. And I was overlooking the sea sitting at the table and I wrote Magic Man. And I right. thought, maybe I've got something here.
in 80, 79 or 80 at the Half Jack in Mschlange Sands. I think I played there as a solo artist. Yes, you were solo. Yeah. So that would have been 79, 80. So around that time we were forming the Uptown Rhythm Dogs right. and Morris Fresco flew to Durban and on the 16th floor at, at our flat, at our parents' flat at Montezuma, we'd moved my sister's bed. She'd moved out of home against the wall and Tony, Dan, and I rehearsed the Uptown Rhythm Dogs in there and got our first job with an agent. I remember walking in, finishing dinner, and wandering past this little venue and then hearing somebody in, walking in and going, wow, this is different, <laughs> yeah, you know? Different. I mean, that, 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 that to me, which was the start of our relationship for over 40 years. Absolutely, and we've stayed um, friends ever since. Ever, ever, ever since and worked together. Yeah. Then you moved to Joburg with the Uptown Rhythm Dogs. We started touring, and we right. played Solly's Tavern in Joburg, and we played Dispense in Pretoria, Chelsea Underground. That was around the time that you signed us. Well, I remember we put out, I think we put out a, a single first. I think we put out Roxy Lady first.
booked us at that studio in Hilbra. CNG. CNG. Was that Peter Hubner's studio? Peter Hubner's studio, yeah. And I remember we recorded Roxy and another song. And what was interesting on that session, and I don't know who booked them, but we needed a bass player and drummer because we were a band of acoustic guitar, piano, sax. sax. The two musicians who arrived, the drummer was Vusi Kumalo, who went on to play with Paul Simon and everyone. And the other one, who arrived, he had a Beatle bass, he had no bag for it, and it was his first recording session, and it was Bagheti Kumala, who now still lives in the US and still plays with Paul Simon. After you got signed to Weir, you went into the studio with the late Chris Galakis to do The Occupant. And that was Sackville Studios in downtown Johannesburg. Yeah, absolutely. That's right, Chris produced the album. But before that, we were in Cape Town and you put us in the studio with Tully and we did Voices, Voices. and Junk Foods. Junk Foods. And Junk Foods made it onto the album. Onto the album, yeah. Those came out as singles as well, kind of almost in parallel yes. with, with the album. We put the Tully version onto the album of Junk. When I woke up this morning and I saw you Stranger, which was completely different to anything on the album. You remember, I'd called it The Strangler, <laughs> and you said to me, SABC won't play it, let's change it to The Stranger. You've got a better memory than I have. <laughs> <laughs> that single got quite a lot of airplay, brought a lot of attention to the band. I it remember did. Joe Alves was on guitar, plays yep. that ripping solo on there. Joe Alves on the album on electric guitar, and Neil McKellar on drums, That's right. and Chris on bass, yeah. and then the, the Uptown Rhythm Dogs, yeah. 
What strikes me even now about the occupant is just how varied it was. Mm. You had love songs like Roxy Lady, things like Caravan and Cries from the Sea. I hate to call it social commentary, but in a way it was. Cries of the Sea was about saving the planet. Mm. A Little Friend, the kind of punkyish song, was about child abuse. Mm which was happening then already. There was quite a bit of subject matter there. So the album went out, and, and we had a fair amount of success on radio. Junk food's not so much, because, I mean, junk food's and disposable ladies. I don't know if you'd get away with that now these days. <laughs> you, you wouldn't, you know. You honestly wouldn't. I mean, there was a time where I wanted to send it out to, to international artists to cover. People like Rod Stewart, I thought, would have done a great version <laughs> of it, but forget about it today. We were playing at the Chelsea Underground, and I, I arrived for the gig, and there was a note on the keyboard, and it said something like, People like you who write songs like Junk Foods and Dis Disposable Ladies, you're a misogynistic pig. And there were all these feminist women sitting in the, in the audience. <laughs> and thank God for Edie Nederlander, who was a dear friend and a great musician. And she went to them and said, Neil's writing about the celebration of women. He's not degrading women. So, well, so get over it. Well, know? I mean, it is a snapshot of life on the road, isn't it? Absolutely. That's all it was. And it was a celebration of women. There were a couple of other songs that came out as well following that. There was uh, uh, Don't Go Away. and Which I'm very proud of, Scott. Yeah, just got such a vibe. nice thing about the occupant is even what 40 years later it was still 81. sounds quite fresh and that i think was down to chris's great production and also the arrangements it wasn't cluttered it's the way i wanted the record to sound um whereas later chris produced another album for me called the rule of the swallow mm. and he 
went off at a tangent. I wanted it to be an acoustic kind of album. Chris, all the, all the new technology was out and Curiosity Killed with the cat were top of the charts and Chris was like, no, 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 we've got to go that sound. You know? And I was like, no, Chris, I want it to be earthy and acoustic. Generally, the, the, the albums of the 80s suffer from that terrible drum sound. And that, that overproduction. That overproduction, yeah. but that snare which yeah. resonates almost through every album from Duran Duran to Cock Robin to whatever. Is you've got that, that slapping snare sound. And you couldn't get away with it. You know, in 83, a guy called Mark Tudder flew me to London to work with a friend of his who was a keyboard player called Vic Martin. And at the time, Vic was in the Eurythmics. He he became an expert on the DX7 and on the Drumulator, which was where all those drum sounds came from. And this was the new thing. And Stuart Levine phoned him and said... I want you to teach me how to use the DX7 because I'm producing the new Simply Red album. And Vic said to him, no, 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 you book me and I will give you my skills and all that. And that's where I got used to those sounds, but then I didn't want the the Rule of the Swallow to sound like that. What was unique about the the Uptown Rhythm Dogs? And I suppose it's the, the reason why I landed up signing you. The lineup was so different. Dan Chiaboli on multiple percussion instruments, Tony Hunter, sax, and also played a mean bass. He played a mean bass, he played guitar, he he just was such a musical genius. He um, was. He had such a big part, it was such a big part of the Uptown Rhythm Dogs. But I agree with you, I think the fact that live we looked unique as well. You did. And <clears> you were doing keyboards, keys. keyboards and guitars. Yeah. Just rolling forward now to that Janissian tour, which I think we all thought might have been the breakthrough that we were looking for, and the sad, untimely death of Tony in a car crash, that must have impacted heavily on you. It was dreadful, and I mean, I'll never forget, it was the first, I think it was the first show at the Coliseum for for Janissian's tour, and I had to fly in the afternoon to East London play a song at his wife's request at the graveside and fly back to Joburg to do the gig. It was just... And and after that, we got Greg Georgiadis in on guitar and Jerry Salandis came in on keyboards. Keyboard, yeah. And we were playing at that venue. I started at the Dawson's Hotel mm. called The Venue. And after us, we booked um, Evoid, came in after us. And we played there for a while and then it was working musically but I think my heart was had gone because of Tony. And eventually we just broke up and Dan went back to Durban and um, Greg went to London, I think. And Where, where did Kenny Henson and Abstract Truth and Freedoms fit into to what you were doing? After the dogs broke up and I worked, um, my uncle had a music shop in Pretoria and Every time I didn't have a band or a gig, he'd say, okay, you can come and earn a salary and work in the music shop with me. Kenny joined the Uptown Rhythm Dogs. He was with Brian, and he just felt he needed a bit of a musical break. Just he wanted to explore a little bit more, and he joined the dogs, and we were playing at Despens, and he came and joined us for a couple of months. And he added a really unique sound. I mean, I don't think I realized at the time what a great guitar player Kenny Henson really was. And he was way beyond, but I didn't realize it until afterwards. And now when I listen to Abstract Truth albums, you Brilliant. realize that 
Indian raga kind of things he did on the electric way guitar. Ahead, way, way ahead, ahead of, yeah. When everybody else was going psych, yeah. um, he was dipping into what was later called world music. Absolutely. So other players that were with you, I remember I think in Bizarre was Steve Mutchinson, I think his name was. Bizarre was Steve Minchington, was George Voris on drums. Right. Was George Spencer, the great George Spencer on, on percussion and, mic- and vibraphone. Right. I mean, George Voris is an amazing drummer, and I spoke to him two days ago. He's living in, uh, he lives in Newcastle in England, and he's doing a new solo album, and, and we were just chatting about it. And there was Greg Georgiadis on guitar and myself. It was a great band. I loved that band. Fast forward, we're sort of going into the, the 80s. I think the 80s went by with a flash. It did, you know? yeah. For certain reasons. <laughs> For certain reasons, which we won't go into on this. <laughs> then you formed what really was a super group, The Passengers, with the aforementioned George Spencer and um, Gabby LaRue. What actually happened is I formed The Passengers and it was Steve still on bass. It was Greg on guitar. I think it was Andre van der Heerfein drums. We were playing at the Oxford Hotel in Johannesburg. And I got a call from George Spencer, who was overseas playing with the other bass at Rollers. Right. They finished this bass at Rollers tour. This was about 86, I think. Right. They had finished this tour. And him and Woody from the bass at Rollers and Ian Mitchell were sitting in LA and George said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I've just formed the passengers. We are four piece and, and we're playing at the Oxford Hotel. And he said, oh, we'll see you in three days. We're coming to join the band. I was like, what? He said, there's nothing happening in LA. So three days later, we were a seven piece band. Ian Mitchell came in as well. Ian Mitchell came in as well. That's when Greg decided to go to the UK uh, Woody took over on guitar. George went on to drums and percussion. Mm. And then a little bit later, we got brought Gabby LaRue in. Then Steve Minchington decided to go overseas. Chris and we got Becker. in Chris Becker. Awesome bass player. It was, we were that, by that stage, we were playing at the, the Chelsea Underground. Steve was leaving and Chris Becker came to audition. He was absolutely <laughs> trashed. And he got up and he didn't get off, and that was Chris Becker in the band. I mean, I remember the band so fondly at Jaggers, and that was a hooligan club, I think, if anyone's ever been to wow. one of those. Jaggers was wild, and I mean, yeah. the passengers were, you were almost like the resident band at that at one We kind point. of became that, and I, even though I said myself, it was technically an incredibly good band. The musicianship of Gabby and George and, and Chris, Chris and, and It was more mainstream than what you had done in the past, though. It was more mainstream. Even some of the songs that I wrote or we, some we co-wrote, like Hold On and Gotta Get, Get Away. Away.
I enjoyed writing like that as well. You know, one one night at um, Jagger's, I thought, "Oopsie, I don't think I'm going to make money out of this band." The reason being that I looked, and that table was just drummers watching George Spencer. That table was bass players watching Chris Becker, and that table was keyboard players watching Gabby. And I thought, mm. "Well, the rest of the tables were the women, and the rest were." <laughs> Because they were a very popular band with the, with the ladies. Yeah, the band didn't do too badly. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did The Passengers exist for? You never put an album out, did you? A Rule of the Swallow, Swallow is was, kind of was called Neil, uh, The Passengers featuring Neil Solomon. But it was really only Chris Baker, Woody and I, and then mm. a lot of programmed instruments, you know. Mm. Um, so it was more the three of us. Chris was still there and Woody was still there. And then Woody went back to Britain. Woody went back to Britain. He's got his own version of the Bay City Rollers at the moment. They, a couple of months ago, toured with Rod Stewart. Chris Becker is doing extremely well in Australia. He became a session musician. And now there's a guy called John Stevens who kind of replaced uh, Michael Hutchins in, in, in Excess. NXS. And now it's a John Stevens band, but it's a tribute band, right. a really good tribute band. They tour the whole of Australia and all over, actually. Following the passengers, I mean, we kept in, in touch right throughout, right, yeah. right throughout the 80s. Yeah. And then the next project, that, which is one of my favorite albums and definitely in the top 20 albums for me of uh, South African music, is your work with The Gathering of the Beasts. Oh, thanks. In 92. Tell me how, how that project came about. My dad passed away 83, 84, around there. And I decided to go back to Durban to be closer to my mom. And so I was asked to join Nicholas Ellenbogen's theatre company at NAPAC at the time. It was called the Loft Theatre Company. So I joined that as an actor, musician, and all that. And we did a lot of stuff in schools. And later in the 80s, Nicholas formed a, um, an environmental theatre company and we f he formed the Theatre for Africa. And he wrote a lot of words and I put the music to them for a lot of our plays. One of the plays was called Gathering the Beast. There was one that centred around me called The Trophy Hunters. And so we decided to do an album. We took songs from both those productions, called it Gathering of the Beasts, And then I wrote one song which also went on, on my own called um, I Don't Want to See You. Very proud of that album. Mm -hmm. It really, mm -hmm. it, it featured the great Ian Herman on drums. Um, Moritz Lotz on guitar. Fana Zulu, Moritz Lotz, Peps Kotomacho, another one who's passed away, and myself on the album. The day before, I, decided, I said, let's have a rehearsal to teach you all the songs, you know, because... I think maybe one or two of them are a bit complex and this and that. And they came in and I'd booked a rehearsal space for the day and Ian Herman flew through these things, Final Zulu, and I think two and a half hours later the album was ready and we went. Those days you recorded, recorded the album in like tracks in two days. I went in one evening because there wasn't budget for studio time. All the vocals in one evening. The next evening, Peps did all the backing vocals. Album was ready to mix and done. But isn't that the way to make a record? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. that spontaneity, that first yeah. take, that second take. Yeah. And you can't go back. You're out of the studio. It's done. It's always mystified me that, let's say, somebody like Fleetwood Mac would spend a million dollars and a year recording an album. 
The spontaneity is gone at that point. But I suppose when you've got that kind of money, you can afford <laughs> to do that. What's beautiful, I think, and why Gathering of the Beasts is in my top 20, is just incredibly diverse mm. that record is. And again, we talked earlier about you tapping into social issues mm. as well as what was happening with the environment. Obejani, the song about the black rhino. Yeah. That is one of the most incredible songs. It's got that kind of rhythmic kind of... You could almost dance to it, but the message... Yeah. He stands the wind. He is the air. Sees in a mist the spirit of Africa. His anger flares. He thinks on blood. Nicholas was a master, is a master at that kind of lyric. And obviously he writes it more in a play kind of way. I adapted those words into a song format and all that. I'm proud of that album. I think musically, really interesting album, you know. It's very diverse. I mean, you you tap into Arabic influences, you tap into African, there's blues. So light your touch. It's the most incredible atmospheric song because it's got that chant and the chromatic violin and it kind of like, I don't know, it's a sails. Of your fate in the 
from the play that Nicholas Roy called The Trophy Hunters. Mm. So I was this Arabic elephant hunter in North Africa. That was my character. That, in the play? In the play centered around this character. And he also sang songs around the campfire. This is the place to bring in my Lebanese influences. And because it was a theater piece, mm. I think the atmosphere came out naturally into it. So it wasn't a forced atmosphere or anything, and I think that's what you're picking up Well, on, I mean, you know. there is a thread running through your work that dips into influences from other parts of the yeah. world. One of the most evocative and moving songs is Sing to the Moon, because mm. that line that you write, I climbed inside the bottle to give my head a rest. It's sad. The plight of indigenous yeah. people Absolutely. across the world. Yeah, you know? across the world. I once read this thing that, you know, uh, we had the land and you gave us the Bible and the bottle and took the land. And you find alcohol abuse, which I think is a subject of Sing to the Moon. You find it in in North American Indian culture, in Inuit culture, in the Bushmen. So again, you're dipping into other influences. It's bordering on social commentary, isn't it? Very much so. And I think most of that album was, it was... Awareness, making people mm. aware, you know. I don't Is that know if, important to you? I mean, it's very important to me. I mean, I don't know if you, you've heard recently the, the song I did called Homeland, a song for refugees. Mm. So I've just kept that thread going right through, you know. Well, I think you found a nice balance between love songs and heartbreak songs, like I Don't Want to See You, which is, you know, running round and round inside my head. I mean, I mean that's got to be one of the best heartbreak songs. I remember when I heard that, I think in subsequent relationships that I was involved in, and they broke up, I was like, oh, I've got to play this song of Neil's. That's the thing about lyrics. They resonate with people in different ways. Absolutely. When you touch on subject matters like love and heartbreak and that, I'm always so aware that when I'm writing a song like that, I just don't want it to cross over into that cheese line. That sort of really syrupy... Um, I love you, you love Ario me. Oreo Speedwagon yeah. kind of thing. You know? yeah. yes. <laughs> but that line is brilliant. Thanks, man. I've always loved that line because... It sticks cer- in your head. Certainly, certainly for me at, at that time... so bad You take away my hope and faith in life I wake up in the morning see a sunny sky and then I see a cloud out the corner of my eye Time will tell us what is right or wrong Begun, but not for long. You say that you are lonely, say that I don't care. But when I show my feelings, you don't believe that I am there. I don't want to see you, I don't want to make you cry. I 
for refugees. The first lockdown came. I suppose many people felt that, that panic. What am I going to do? I said to Taryn, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I thought, I haven't done a Neil Solomon solo album for years and years. So I thought, do it in an old-fashioned way. The same piano that was in our flat in Durban, which my folks bought for me for my 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. I have it in the studio at home in Johannesburg. And I thought, write in the old-fashioned way. Don't sit at your computer getting grooves and loops and this and that. And I sat at the piano. And one of the first songs I started writing was, I, was, I sat there and I was thinking, how did my grandparents feel standing at the docks in Beirut, waiting for a ship to go into the unknown? There were two ships. One was going to South America and one was going to South Africa. And this is quite a common story of people from that era who were leaving Lebanon, is they got on the wrong ship. My dad's parents and family thought they were going to South America, and they got on the wrong one, and they went got on the one to South Africa, and they arrived in Durban. My surname is actually Ghalib in my Lebanese citizenship. They said to my grandfather, what's, what's your name? And he said, Khalil Ghalib. And they said, what's a good his real name was Khalil Slaman Ghaleb. So he said George Solomon, and they just write down George Solomon. And so that's how I became Solomon. But thinking about all these things about how they felt, and I, I wrote this song called Take Me Back to My Homeland. Pops, who's a dear friend, the great Pops Muhammad, heard it, and he said, Neil, I'm doing an online concert for refugees with the Turquoise Harmony Institute. Will you do the song with me? And he sent it to Ayan Seaton from the Turquoise Harmony Institute, who are people, they're Turkish people who do amazing work for refugees in South Africa. They integrate, how do you integrate into South African society? And, and Ayan heard it and he said, oh man, this is a message, worldwide message. You know, could we turn it into an anthem? I thought, okay, let's do it this way. I phoned um, J.B. Arthur and, and Lance Cormack, who were running the Flame Studios at Constitution Hill, those beautiful studios mm-hmm. that were set up by Robbie Brosen from Nando's. And they said, we in on this. That's such an important um, subject matter. And so we did it in a real old-school anthem way. We got a hot sticks and Yvonne Chaka Chaka from the old days, we got Rocksteady Dub from Mozambique. We got an incredible singer from Beirut called Ren Saad, who lives in, in Johannesburg now. Bienvenue and Seca. A lot of people. We got 15 people from the Joburg Orchestra with um, Kutluano Masorti conducting the string parts and the, and the brass parts. And so 
The song was born. We're now doing it in different languages. Um, Ren has done an Arabic version. Angie Peach came to the studio the other day, Greek version. And so it's just to get it around into all territories around the world, spreading the word that we are all refugees in some way or the other. All societies are made up of refugees. Absolutely. Whether well, I mean, those are economic refugees or political or refugees. You're looking for a better life, you're a refugee. causal musician in a way in that you things that you feel strongly about for instance the liberation project yeah, it, it's it's never been intentional it's okay. just kind of happened you feel something and yeah. then you get involved the liberation project is another one of these multi-country projects that you've been heavily involved in yeah. tell us about that it's a project that was a collaboration between musicians from sort of aware musicians from cuba Italy, South Africa, and UK. Phil Manzanero, the great Roxy Music, Music, came in as a producer, and myself and Dan. I wrote a lot of songs, and we collated a lot of songs. 
Cyril Neville from the Neville Brothers contributed his song. Other guys from Italy and Phil Manzanera contributed quite a few songs. And it became a three-CD album with a lot of different subject matter. There's a song about Desmond Tutu and stuff. There's Free Nelson Mandela. We did a cover of the specials song. And then it culminated in a concert at Joburg Theatre, which was really like 18 of us on stage, Wissi Mishlisela, Cyril Neville. It was just amazing, ridiculous, eh? you know. I want to talk to you about the process of writing. So age-old thing, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I yeah. mean, for you, how does writing, for instance, your own personal kind of music, how does that, is it, is it something you are triggered by an incident, a word, a vision? How does it work for you? I work in, in different ways when it comes to writing songs. The most common way for me is I sometimes get a line or two lines or a title, and I've got a book, and I just jot them down. I love writing, pen to paper, sort of, Mm. it goes in deep. And I'll leave it, I'll leave it for ages, and then somewhere I maybe get a chord sequence, or a drum beat comes in my head, and so I, I put them together in different ways. Every song comes together in a very different way. Writing for yourself is very difficult because you have to get the germ and then plant the seed and you know whereas if I'm writing for a movie or television or something it's much easier in some ways if I'm writing say a movie score you've got picture already Mm. you have talks with the director Mm. you spot through the film with the director and also There's something there already. And for me, when I'm writing for film to picture, if the music doesn't say something, don't put it in. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's dialogue of the actors and music is sub-dialogue. If it doesn't say something, don't put it in. You know, whereas when you're writing a song, you're sitting there thinking, what should I write about? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, songs are like wild animals. They can't be caged. So when something is inside you... yeah you've got to get out so you write a line or you write a phrase or you have a melody line or whatever. It's actually become more like that later as a writer, but I think that's because I've become more um, picky or more self-critical. When you're young and you're sitting writing Magic Man, you think, wow, man, I'm good. (laughs) You know what I mean? You, You are so amazed at something new coming out that you don't kind of criticize it, so you leave it as it is. But now, nowadays, I write a song and then I go, oh, no, I really don't think that's working, which is good. Mm. I suppose in some ways the hard ones are probably the really personal ones. Maybe lyrically, to put it on paper and admit the truth is possibly the way, you know. My catalogue of film and television and ambient music for for projects is over 7,000. 7,000 pieces of, of music. Like film and television and all that. But remember, when I write a, a TV series, it's ongoing. I do 6 to 12 episodes a week. Each episode, you reuse some pieces, but you, they're new stories. So you write four new pieces per episode. Yeah, right. and you're doing 12 episodes a week. Quickly adds up, you know, so... It's not as amazing as it sounds. It is a lot of work. You ventured 
in the last few years heavily into library music. Um, I have. And obviously you, you write film scores, and I mean, your CV on film scores is insane. So you just have to go to Neil Solomon's uh, website to see what he's accomplished on that. Your venture into library production music, how does that work? Do you write that on spec? or I was doing um, quite a bit for KPM in London. They tell you what they want, right. and they'll say, can we have a traditional music album of East African music or a traditional music album of South African music or um, an I'm a Piano album? All three titles I've mentioned is what I've, been, I've done in the past for them. And I don't know if you know, Sheer Music acquired my Passage One Music film catalogue, and so I'm busy repurposing all that music for that. So I'm dictated by the library that I already mm. have, so whatever it is, um, it's from children's music through to African music film scores. Yeah. Do you ever write a piece and you go, hold on, I'm not going to give that to them, I'm going to nick that for my own songs? It does, it does happen, <laughs> I'm sure but don't it does. tell them. No, I won't tell them that. <laughs> You also, which I didn't know until recently, you're also a painter. <laughs> so, so imagine my surprise when Taryn, your partner, said to me, oh, Neil's having an exhibition of paints. And I kind of vaguely remember you used to do graphic design. Yes, yeah. Didn't know you were a painter. And I mean, I bought a beautiful, beautiful piece. That, has that become more important to you as, you as you've gotten older? It's always been important to me. In fact, I wanted to, to be an, a an artist, like I said, a sculptor, that was my first thing. And my dad was like, no ways. You're going to do something else, you know, and to earn a living. And I put it on the back burner. And I, th- I always thought when I get older, over 50 kind of thing, I'm going to start doing it. And then I've been busy and I just, again, locked down, really. Mm. Brought it on. It was like there, I had time. And I, I thought, okay, let's get back to it. And so I got back to it, and I had two exhibitions last year, one at um, the Stockville Gallery in Melville, which you kindly came to, and I had one at the Hilton Arts Festival in the Midlands. So it's a bit of a balancing act for you. You've, you've got painting, you've got your you know, library production music, you've got your solo, you've got your uh, concept records that you do. How do you balance everything? Would you just go with the, the, the flow on it? I have to go with the flow. I mean, right now I'm working on a um, on a theatre piece. Uh, Sandra Prinsloo is doing a new Afrikaans play uh, for Kaka and Ka. And I was asked by the director, Tony Morkel, would I like to do the sound design and music? And I said, with Sandra Prinsloo, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um I'm trying to balance between delivering production music albums because I have deadlines on that, and then I sneak into the back room, the art room, and I try and just do so. I constantly have a piece going there. At the moment, I've got a water pe- watercolour piece going on. Um, so I just run in and do a little bit each day. You, know? you did the um, Uptown Rhythm Collective, which was, an up, I guess, an updated version of the dogs, right? What actually happened and why it's called the Uptown Rhythm Collective is because Greg and I got together. We thought it was a bit of a joke. It will probably be the longest time between first and second album of the up, of a band. Yeah. So we were writing for the Uptown Rhythm Dogs. And when we did the album, I said, it's not an Uptown Rhythm Dogs album. It's, I hate the word world music, but I suppose it is mm. world music or global music or mm. whatever. And I said, let's compromise, keep Uptown Rhythm name. And it's a collective. 
because also we used Nfali Kuyute, the great Kora player from the Afrocult sound system on it, and Renee from Reunion on accordion and that kind of thing, and Moritz produced and arranged that one. And so we're doing a follow-up. Three tracks ready. It, this one is, we've uh, consolidated it just to uh, Moritz, Greg, and myself. And I bumped into Boki de Beer. The, oh, from Juluka and Savuka, who's in South Africa, because he's been living in Canada for 30 years. Has he come back? He's back because his mom's very ill in Whitbank. So he's going to come to the studio on Thursday and add some drums and perk. When do you think this album will come out? Well, there's a new Neil Solomon album as well. <laughs> You're a busy <laughs> um, person. I'm trying to decide which one but goes out first, but I think I think we'll get some of the tracks from the Uptown Rhythm Collective out by the end of Feb. I don't know if it'll be the whole album, but we may start off with some singles. Or You're just making music for the love of music, right? Well, in terms of these things, yeah. there's no way we're doing it for any other reason, not to become famous or to make <laughs> lots of money. We do it because we love it. And I it's mean, an outlet for that creative It's an spirit. outlet for that side. You know, you earn out of music on the, on the other side, yeah. doing film scores or television and all that. Is your creative spirit still burning bright? It's burning as bright as when I started. I've always said I, I see producers who are doing it for a living rather stop and do something else. Mm. And I said I will stop. If I lose the passion for music, I will stop. As you said, you're balancing everything. You've got a wonderful studio, Passage One, where, where you yeah. do record all your stuff, but you also uh, record other people. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of voiceovers as well, and different artists come in who want to use the studio. We become a little more selective. There's quite a lot of... I'm a piano guy who like to use the studio, hip-hop people and stuff like that, because, I mean, that's the majority of the music being made in this country at the moment. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. I mean, where is the industry at the moment? I mean, it, it's certainly not an album-orientated business no. anymore. It's more a single-track business. Very much so. And it seems to be very stylized in one genre or mm. another. I don't know if you agree, but not terribly inventive. And maybe that's just because it's a different time. It's a different time, and, and I can't say I love it because music has become so genre-driven. Mm. And I say the up-and-coming people and that are not prepared to develop their own sound and their own style. You know, I mean, when we started out, every band sounded different. Mm. Tribe after tribe we were playing at Chelsea sounded different to Petit Cheval, who sounded different to The Passengers. You, say, you know, Mango mm. was different. If None of us were copying each other. Mm. And now the trend is you've got to sound like DJ Mapariso or, you know... Or Black Coffee. Or, or Black Coffee, or, or, yeah. Amapi, or the yeah, latest yeah. piano. Do you think that that's because it's a combination of the development of social media... And now with the, the recent develop of AI, which is either a blessing or a curse, depending on which way you look at it. And also the lack of radio station support. But I suppose radio in a way has been overtaken by things like YouTube and streaming. TikTok has, I'm not saying killed everything, but that's where everybody finds their musical content. Mm. And that's... What it's limited to, and pretty much the only thing is in this country is I'm a piano and hip-hop that's on TikTok. So they're not being made aware of other genres. And like you say, I mean, radio stations for years 
have stuck to those formats. You know better than anyone. Mm. Um, and you just cannot... I mean, I remember the days when, when you were involved more in radio. You'd hear Pat Metheny, and then you'd hear, you know, the latest pop song. AI, do you see it as an opportunity, or, or is it a curse? Is it going to take away all original creativity out of the process? I don't think it's going to take um, away original creativity. For me, I'm saying to, to people who are talking to me about it, let's embrace it. We can actually use it to our advantage. It'll never replace a human. Sure, you hear a cover of a Frank Sinatra song with John Lennon's voice. It's a novelty. Maybe a couple of people are going to download it and think it's amazing, but the majority of the people aren't that stupid. Mm. And I think that novelty is going to wear off. And the human spirit is too strong. I'm going to embrace it. If it's going to help me write a movie score, I'll use it. Well, long may you write great music, Neil. Thank it's you. It's been a Bench. pleasure having you on From the Hip, brought to you by Solid Gold Podcast. So thanks for it. If you want to know more about Neil Solomon, go to the web and type in neilsolomon.co.za. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Bench. Thank you. Flying up above sea level, I'm feeling so hot, I've been bedeviled. Dancing round the fire with the dance rattle Was feeling so low, I saw the devil Didn't I tell you, there's a snake in the grass Didn't I tell you, it's a thing of the past Flying down below sea level I'm feeling so down, I've been bedeviled Evil is the devil without any They know who they are And so do we Didn't I tell you There's a snake in the grass Didn't I tell you It's a thing of the past You've been listening to another production From Solid Gold Podcast He's looking for something A stranger to friends and a soul that is blind Sold out to the devil They'll always find Friends in dark places and friends that are blind In the past, in the grass, in the grass.